Welcome back to the Big Amateurs of Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a real quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories. And if you want to shoot me an email, you can do so. Send it to rich at cagerredux.com. That's R-I-C-H at C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right, today is May 25th, 2022, and I've got some disappointing news for revenue-producing athletes and athletes' rights advocates. The revenue-sharing pathway to recognizing the rights of revenue-producing athletes and treating them as free Americans has been shut down. It's done. It's over. Stick a fork in it. And it was done very quietly on two fronts. And uh, one I've talked quite a bit about, and that is this California revenue sharing bill, SB 1401, titled the College Athlete Race and Gender Equity Act. And the second front is an amendment, an important amendment to the Federal Athletes Bill of Rights law that had a revenue sharing component, and that has been taken out. So we have both of these initiatives failing. The California law has been buried in this suspense file that I've talked about before, and this federal law has been neutered, essentially. And in both situations, it appears to me that in this false binary clash between the interests of African-American men whose talents and labors underwrite the entire business model in big-time college sports and the interest of female athletes, the uh, decision-makers in the state of California and the sponsors sponsors of the Athletes' Bill of Rights in the Senate have made a clear choice, and that is to elevate the interests of female athletes over the interests of the African-American men in football, men's basketball, who pay for this whole shooting match. And as I'm going to discuss again, that's a false binary. It's a, a divisive argument that has been inserted into the discussion by force, by NCAA, Power Five interests, and lawyers and lobbyists and spin doctors. And it is just bad news all the way around. But at the political level, the decision makers are falling for it. So uh, I, I want to talk a, a little more specifically about these two important bills. So let me start with this California bill, SB 1401. And that bill was introduced in February of 2022 by uh, California State Senator Stephen Bradford, who had been involved in the passage of SB 206, the Fair Pay to Play Act, California's name in and likeness law. And I've done two episodes on this California revenue sharing bill. The first was episode 113 titled the California College Athlete Race and Gender Equity Act is revenue sharing politically viable. And that was April 25th. And then on May 10th, I did a follow-up uh, episode 117 titled California Senate keeps athletes in quote unquote suspense on revenue sharing bill. And I described this Byzantine process where bills that are sent to the appropriations committee after they make it out of the content and policy committees. They go to appropriations for evaluation, and there's this bizarre process where they can put bills in the suspense file. And once they are in that file, they are off the record. There is a star chamber-like discussion about those bills. And then a few weeks later, a list gets published informing the public what bills are actually going to make it to the Senate floor, what, what passed the suspense file litmus test, whatever that may be. And also those bills that are, quote unquote, on hold in committee, which means they're not going anywhere. They have been deep sixed. And uh, just last week on May 19th, the California Senate published list. It's it's unofficial because there there's still technically some procedural machinations a sponsor of a bill could use to try to pull a bill out of the suspense file, but that's not going to happen with this bill. But in that May 19th list, the Bradford bill, SB 1401, this revenue sharing bill was put into the quote-unquote hold in committee classification, which means it is buried and it will not see the light of day. 
That's what I mean when I said stick a fork in this bill, it is done. Theoretically, it can come back out next year. But in that episode 117, I, I talked about how opaque this process is. Critics of that process have pointed not just to the lack of transparency, but also to the fact that once a California bill makes it into the suspense file, it is really subject to some hardcore special interest lobbying. That's where the real lobbying activity occurs, and it is invisible to the public. So I I talked about some of the political hot buttons that this bill pushes, and gender equity was chief among them. In the early hearings on, on the bill in the uh, Senate Education Committee, then the Senate Judiciary Committee, there was, I think, superficial support for this bill, but also a lot of criticism, both in terms of how the numbers work, how you would calculate this revenue, and second, there were concerns of the impact of any arrangement like that or framework like that on gender equity, on women's sports, on Title IX, and then also on other non-revenue sports. I'm not going to go through all of those arguments again. You can go back and listen to those episodes. But this bill really went directly to, I think, the fundamental question in the athletes' rights movement. And that is, are decision makers, whether at the voluntary regulatory level, the NCAA, the Power Five, all the governance bodies, all these committees, and federal courts, and Congress, and state legislators, are, are they going to recognize the true value of big-time football and men's basketball players to the overall business model and the institutional interests, or are they going to subordinate those interests to other concerns and other institutional interests? Those are false binaries because there is absolutely no reason why the athletes who underwrite all of the benefits that the downstream non-revenue athletes receive shouldn't be able to participate in some form of revenue sharing and this zero-sum world that the institutional stakeholders uh, have portrayed and this fabricated tension between the interests of African-American men in football and men's basketball and then downstream beneficiaries in non-revenue sports and women's sports that are overwhelmingly white. There is plenty of money in the system, and the uh, revenue-producing athletes should be able to participate in the fruits of their labors as any other American can. And in this debate, particularly the political debate and the way that it has evolved, the issues have been framed in a way that those two interests can't be reconciled. So you have to make a choice. They're forcing a false choice, and the choice so far is the interest of the non-revenue athletes and the Olympic athletes and female athletes over African-American men. And it's just a terrible framework, and it is divisive as hell, and it is totally unnecessary. But that is where it sits right now. And what happened, I believe, with this California bill is perfect evidence of that. And uh, I talked about the comments of Anna Caballero, I think is her name, Sen Senator Caballero, who was on the Judiciary Committee that uh, voted this bill through to appropriations. So, so the bill made it through the first two policy committees, education and judiciary, by a wide margin. They issued what now appears to be a symbolic vote to acknowledge that these African-American revenue-producing athletes have a legitimate argument to make and may have legitimate interests. But when push came to shove, they buried that revenue-sharing bill because they didn't want to have to talk and about and resolve in an open public debate this false tension that's been created between the revenue-producing athletes and the non-revenue-producing athletes. But Senator Caballero really articulated that ambivalence, and I talked at some length about her comments in episode 117, so you might want to go back and check that out. And that is precisely how the issues are going to be framed and are being framed right now through the NCAA Power Five lobbyists and lawyers and spin doctors in their campaign in the United States Senate. And speaking of the Senate, that brings me to the second front on which athletes took a hit in their quest to be valued as any other free American would be valued for their talents and labors. And that was a pullback on the Athletes' Bill of Rights that was announced by Cory Booker at a symposium, a sports symposium 
hosted by the Drake Group, and the name of the symposium is the Alan Sack National Symposium, Advancing Integrity in College Sport. I did not watch the forum. It's going to be posted on the Drake Group website at some point. But I did go through and look at the written materials that were presented, and there was a very interesting document that suggests to me that the sponsors, or at least Senator Booker, who was one of the co-sponsors of the Athletes' Bill of Rights, a, a Senate bill that, that had a revenue-sharing component that's virtually identical to the California bill. And I talked about both of those bills in those prior episodes on the California bill. But those are the only two revenue-sharing proposals that are out there in the landscape. And the reason I think it's so important to, to have this pathway in the discussion is that it stops short of athletes actually being employees. Neither the California bill nor the Athletes' Bill of Rights explicitly confers upon the athletes the status of employee with their institutions. The California bill explicitly says that they're not employees. The Athletes' Bill of Rights doesn't go that far, but it's implied in the way that the bill is structured. So you have this way to try to get the athletes who generate the revenue in this business and whose talents underwrite the entire college sports industrial complex some money for their labors. I don't think that should be a controversial concept. You know, that's what this country's founded on, the basic freedoms that this country is founded on. But in this bizarre, funhouse political debate that's gone on in the California legislature and has been going on in the Senate since the NCAA ran in to, to get a federal bailout beginning in 2019, you have these fundamental American values just being flushed down the memory hole because of the fear mongering and the propaganda by the NCAA. NCAA, Power Five, and their lobbyist lawyers and spin doctors. And it has landed on gender equity. And that target has moved. It, it has evolved. That, they weren't talking gender equity back in 2019 when the California name, image, and likeness law went into effect. They were just threatening to sue the state of California under the Dormant Commerce Clause. They just came in all arrogant. The same kind of arrogance that really has been the NCAA's downfall at the regulatory level under Mark Emmert's leadership. But that was their approach. But as the NCAA got into the propaganda arena when it came to name, image, and likeness, and they started talking about voluntary rules changes, which they still haven't done and they, they never intended to do, they were trying on all kinds of values-based arguments. And they've landed on on this bastardized version of Miles Brand's collegiate model, and they have really isolated the beneficiaries of the labor of uh, big-time football men's basketball players to female athletes. When Brand conceptualized that massive regressive trans transfer of wealth, he was speaking in terms of participation opportunities for all athletes. He wasn't specifically singling out the the women's sports and Title IX and gender equity as the targeted beneficiary of that labor. But in the last year or so, the NCAA and the Power Five and all their in-system stakeholder propagandists have been just lasered in on gender equity because they think that is the winning argument in Congress and in the Senate in particular and in, on the Senate Commerce Committee. And they may be right about that. And I've talked about that quite a bit. And I'm going to talk about it a little bit more when I talk about the extent of the propaganda and the range of the propaganda. Look, you just have to go to the NCAA website. You go to their news section that lists everything that's been published on that website. And you go back to last July when they made over the, the website and they brought in the sidearm sports outfit to help them manage the propaganda. But when you look from, say, July 15th of 2021 to the present, you're going to see that the storylines dominated by shameless appeals to gender equity and to female athletes, female sports, female interests. And the irony of that is just breathtaking given the NCAA's hostility to gender equity issues and Title IX and female athletes' unique interests. That leads back to the early 1970s when they openly, aggressively opposed Title IX. That, that basic approach hasn't changed. And that point was made by the very outside law firm that the NCAA hired 
to try to clean up the mess it created in the uh, 2021 women's basketball tournament and those pictures of the disparities in facilities. That gender equity report pretty clearly pointed out that the NCAA hasn't done a whole heck of a lot to advance the interests of female athletes and to really not just be a rhetorical champion of gender equity, but to actually put their, their actions where their mouth is. But for purposes of lobbying female senators, particularly those on the Commerce Committee, they don't have to show that they've actually done anything on gender equity. They just have to pump out the propaganda and create a sky-is-falling narrative and dishonestly pit the interests of black male revenue-producing athletes against the interests of non-revenue athletes, particularly female athletes. That's all they have to do at the propaganda level, at the political level. And then the politicians just do their synchronized desk dive. And that's exactly what it appears that the supporters of the Athletes' Bill of Rights have done because the revenue-sharing component of the Athletes' Bill of Rights has been removed and in place of it, a meaningless symbolic encomium to Title IX and gender equity that has absolutely no legal import because there's already a law that protects gender equity interest, and it is Title Nine. So all these attempts, I talked about that California law that tried to make the revenue sharing more politically palatable by including some gender equity provisions that they wound up taking out because they really did nothing more than restate Title IX obligations. And they still titled the bill the Race and Gender Equity Bill. But the this new provision, it appears, that, that's going to go into a new version of the Athletes' Bill of Rights, it does the same thing. It has no purpose. It has no meaning. But the the inclusion of that provision and the deletion of the revenue sharing provisions speaks to the power of that issue through the lens of political propaganda. So I want to talk just a little bit about this uh, Athletes' Bill of Rights and then how Booker has described these changes. And then I'm going to talk about the, the consequence of these changes and what I see happening in Congress and the timing both of the original Athletes' Bill of Rights and then the timing of this amendment. The Athletes' Bill of Rights was initially co-sponsored by Booker from New Jersey, Richard Blumenthal from Connecticut, Kirsten Gillibrand from New York and Brian Schatz from Hawaii. It's not clear where Blumenthal, Gillibrand, and Schatz, where they land on this. And in the document that was available uh, on the Drake Group website, it's titled Senator Cory Booker's College Athletes' Bill of Rights Framework. So the original Athletes' Bill of Rights legislation came out, I believe it was December 20th of 2020. And that's important because it was really reactive to bills that had been proposed earlier by Republican senators and by the NCAA itself that really helped shape the nature of the debate. I'll talk a little bit more about that, but this was a reactive bill in my judgment. And the NCAA and Power Five defined the terms of the debate from the very beginning, and that is a very powerful advantage. And that hasn't changed, even with a flip in the Senate. But this College Athletes' Bill of Rights is a comprehensive bill, and it was actually conceptualized on the fly at the third hearing in the Senate in 2020, led by the NCAA and the Power Five when the Republicans had control of the Senate, and that was in the Judiciary Committee. It was July 22nd, and uh, Lindsey Graham was the chair of that committee at the time. And that hearing was titled Protecting the Integrity of College Sports. And I, I pronounced that word integrity the way that Lindsey Graham used it. He, it was just hilarious. Listen to him, integrity. We need to get some integrity in the system. This is about the integrity of college sports. <laughs> he was all over the map, as Graham can be, and he's a hoot. I, I actually like Graham just because he's entertaining. But during that hearing, both Blumenthal and Booker were, were there on that committee, and they wanted to have some other issues on the table besides nil, because the way that the NCAA and Power Five had framed these issues coming into 2020 through their lobbying campaign, they wanted to focus exclusively on nil, and their argument was that they would give uh, name, image, and likeness rights to athletes in exchange for three 
extraordinary federal protections and immunities that would basically immunize the NCAA and Power Five from any second guessing by any external regulator, whether it's federal courts, whether it's state legislatures, or the NLRB, or any federal agency. It was just an audacious ask, and they really worked hard to limit the discussion about the athletes' rights issues to name, image, and likeness. And framing the issues that way and getting the advantage in cementing in that that framework really has been, I think, a problem in this entire discussion in the Senate, because we have this, the terms of debate are very, very narrow, and they have been defined principally by the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries and the institutional interests. And it's so important to understand that because all of this screaming and yelling and all this noise within those narrow guardrails sounds like progress, but really all you're doing is reinforcing the limits that were set on the debate in the first place. And then knocking off on a Noam Chomsky quote that I used in my blog, and, and he made that point. That's what powerful institutions do. They commandeer the debate, they control the language, and then they allow debate within very narrow parameters that they define. And then whatever decision comes out as a result of that process appears as if it was the product of open and robust debate and that all all interests were heard on equal terms. And that's a fantasy. And that fantasy is playing out right now because the Democrats, when they gain control of the Senate, they refuse to break out of that template. And this Athletes' Bill of Rights in 2020, while the Republicans were still in control, was an attempt to try to broaden the debate. And I think that was really its initial purpose because Blumenthal and Booker at that July 22nd hearing, they said to Graham, look, we're not going to go along with this name, image, and likeness only pathway. We want to bring in some other important things. And they were important things. So at that hearing, Graham said, okay, uh, get me something. Get me something by September. So we're in July. The NCAA's had a two-year running head start, and Graham wants to give Blumenthal and Booker a couple of months. And so this Athletes' Bill of Rights, which came out in December, that they didn't meet the September deadline, it is really the product of that exchange that occurred in the Judiciary Committee. And the bill had, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six central components. I'm going to identify them briefly. The first goes directly to athlete compensation, and it was designed to allow athletes to market their name, image, and likeness as a group, included group licensing with minimal restrictions. And then it also had a revenue sharing component that is virtually identical to what was in the California bill. And I'm not going to try to explain the formula. The revenue sharing would only apply in sports that generated net revenue and the share was less than 50% of the net revenue. So it wasn't going to break the bank. It protected half of the money for the institutions to use as they have always used it. And it would have incentivized these big-time programs to take a harder look at their budgets. Not a bad thing, you would think. And then, let's see, the second major component of this bill were enforceable and evidence-based health, safety, and wellness standards. And that is really important here because that's one area where the NCAA, again, has propagandized its way into convincing the public that it really has meaningful and enforceable standards on health protocols. And concussion is really the primary concern there. The NCAA have some guidelines and they have, they pay all these people on their national office staff a, a boatload of money to come up with these guidelines. And pursuant to a legal settlement in a concussion suit, they do some work with the U.S. military, some research. But this bill would have imposed enforceable standards. The third basic component of the Athletes' Bill of Rights were improved educational outcomes and opportunities. There were some reporting requirements and there were some harsh penalties for failure to meet some real academic progress standards, moving away from these funny numbers that the NCAA uses to mask the fact that a lot of these athletes aren't getting a, a meaningful education. So there was a focus on education. Then there was a requirement for a medical trust fund that would have allowed athletes to tap into that for access to meaningful money 
to pay for ongoing medical expenses. And then there was a provision that required some disclosures. I thought it was pretty thin, quite frankly, but it related to revenues and expenditures and the NCAA has their own process. And then there are some disclosures that are required to be made pursuant to a Title IX related law called the EADA, the Equity and Athletics Disclosure Act. But there really isn't a lot of transparency there. And I think that this disclosure requirement was supposed to get at that. And then some uh, other reporting requirements on how much time the athletes really spent on their sports-related activities versus their academic uh, activities. And then some academic outcomes information that's disaggregated by program, race, and gender to really drill down on the impact of this big-time business model on African-American revenue-producing athletes. And then there was another provision that was really a transfer provision. It's it's moot now, I think, but it's titled uh, Freedom for College Athletes to Attend the institution of their choice. And then the last requirement of this bill was the creation of a commission on college athletics that would have oversight and enforcement jurisdiction on the terms of the bill and some other broader areas. And it was going to be top-heavy with athlete representatives, current and former. And it was going to prevent NCAA Power 5 insiders from holding uh, a seat on that commission. And I think that commission also is going to have subpoena power. So the NCAA has been trying to get subpoena power for decades to buttress up its corrupt Stasi-like enforcement and infractions powers. And this turns the tables on that and would have the subpoenas being directed at the, the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries. And I think that is a proper use of subpoena power. If we're going to be talking about subpoena power, for issues in college sports. Let's have those subpoenas going to the Mark Emmerts of the world and not to gathering information to to screw an 18-year-old out of his career, out of his college career. Now let's take a look at what Senator Booker unveiled at this Drake Group Forum last week. And again, I've got a little caveat next to my analysis here because I haven't seen the video of the forum. I've been looking for it online. It's not posted yet. I guess I reserve the right to come back in if I really screwed this analysis up to to clarify. But honestly, this document that's under Senator Booker's name that talks about the new provisions of this amended bill speaks for itself. And uh, if there's one thing that I've learned in my analysis of college sports, it's that you really can only rely on what the stakeholders put into writing or what they do, not what they say. So uh, I just want to clarify as I talk about this, this Booker document that with the exception of the deletion of the revenue sharing component and the addition of this gender equity provision, the rest of the bill is identical to the original version that was uh, proposed in 20. 20. And the transfer component really is is moot now, although it would prevent the NCAA from pulling back on the current transfer rule. If they try to make the case that that's creating chaos and they want to go back to the old system or to have limitations on transfer opportunities that are inconsistent with the athlete's rights, this would at least be a, a federal check on that. So I guess it, it has value in that regard. But the revenue producing section, the fair and equitable compensation section, only speaks in terms of name, image, and likeness. No revenue sharing. And the new provisions in this amended bill include a section titled Clarity and Strength Regarding Gender Equity in College Sports. And again, we haven't seen the actual bill, so we don't know what the actual language is here, but we'll take on face value that this is an accurate representation of what's going to be in that bill. It says the updated version of the College Athletes Bill of Rights includes provisions to bolster compliance to and the enforceability of Title IX by requiring institutions of higher education to conduct evaluations of relevant statistics to measure impact and by requiring subsequent public dissemination of data, the bill will enable accurate assessment of institutional compliance and accountability. The bill will also require the athletic associations do not discriminate on the basis of sex with regard to health and safety, medical care, athletic participation, facilities, and other factors. Now, that all sounds great, and it is great, but guess what? 
every single issue is already addressed by Title IX. This is simply restating Title IX obligations. So this provision does very little to advance gender equity rights or gender equity interests or Title IX rights or interests. It simply restates what already exists. And that's why it's couched in terms of clarify and strength regarding gender equity. There's not a whole lot of clarity there and not a whole lot of strength. So why do you include it? For the same reason that the sponsors of the California law, or the sponsor, Stephen Bradford, that he included the gender equity component in the original bill, which wound up getting ditched because it was superfluous, because it was unnecessary, and it did nothing more than restate Title IX requirements. This bill does the opposite. It takes out the revenue sharing component and then puts in this language about gender equity, again, for political purposes. But the difference between the, the way the gender equity issue was handled in those two bills is that the California bill focused on the real issue. This new version of the Athletes' Bill of Rights avoids it. If the California bill had made it out of that suspense file and onto the Senate floor, there would have been a full, open, robust debate about this tension between the interests of the African-American men whose revenue-generating capacities underwrite the entire college sports business model and the interests of female athletes. That's the way it was pitched. And the decision makers were going to have to make a choice. And again, it was an unnecessary choice because I think that that tension is false tension. And maybe that would have been teased out in debate. We'll never know because nobody wants to have that conversation. They're very happy to have a way out to say, oh yeah, we agree that these revenue-producing athletes may not be treated fairly, but oh boy, we can't do anything about it because we have all kinds of Title IX issues. That's ridiculous on its face. And that's a cop-out. And it's going to remain an easy out for decision-makers so long as they don't actually have to have the debate and cast a vote. And this Athletes' Bill of Rights eliminates the possibility that there's even going to be any discussion. So if the Athletes' Bill of Rights were to see the light of day with this new amendment, there's not going to be any debate about revenue sharing. And the interests of the African-American men whose labors underwrite this entire industry are not going to be on the table. They're simply not going to be on the table. Yeah, are they included? Will they be beneficiaries of the other protections of the Athletes' Bill of Rights? Of course they will. But there will be no discussion about the true value of these athletes to the system. And I, I want to talk a little bit about the consequences of that and some of the unspoken themes that I think drove the uh, decision on that. And in that first episode on the California bill, episode 113, I talked about this revenue sharing framework and that pathway to recognizing the value of revenue producing athletes as really a stress test. We have this new environment with the nil compensation and the fury and the nil derangement syndrome that we see in all the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries. And we have all these other external pathways. We've got the litigation, the Johnson litigation under the Fair Labor Standards Act. We've got the NLRB actions. There, there are two misclassification cases that are pending that would get athletes classified as employees under federal law. We've got the house suit, the name, name image, and likeness suit. And then we've got the uh, states all over the place on their nil laws, and a lot of them are repealing them, as I mentioned in that last episode, to uh, get the benefit of the ambiguity in the interim nil policy that Mark Emmert dumped on the institutions a couple of hours before the July 1st deadline, 2021. And I was really drawn to this California bill because it really does bring to the forefront a discussion about the, the value, the true value of these revenue-producing athletes. And I said, this is going to be a litmus test, essentially, for whether decision-makers are ready to have that conversation. And the answer right now is no, they are not willing to have that discussion, either in the most progressive state in the United States, California, or in one of the most conservative legislative bodies in the country, the United States Senate. It is a non-starter, apparently. But I think it's instructive on, on many fronts. And one is that if decision-makers aren't willing to cross the revenue-sharing Rubicon that 
that it really doesn't go as far as employee status. What does that say about the employee status pathways? I think it says that at the legislative level, whether it's state or federal, I don't think you're going to see legislation that grants athletes employee status. And I think the reluctance to press the envelope on recognizing the value of the revenue producing athletes also suggests that if some of these non-legislative pathways were to move towards athletes as employees, you might see a Senate that would be more receptive to some provision in a federal law that prohibited athletes from being employees. And Congress has the power to do that. They could amend the uh, NLRA or the FLSA, and they could just say athletes can't be employees. I talked about that Marist poll that was done right before March Madness. I talked about that in my episode on the Janus-faced values in college sports and how uh, difficult it is to thread the needle on where Americans sit across demographics, age, race, and and affiliation, and, and all those things. And there's some interesting results in that poll. You can go back and check that episode out as well. But one of my takeaways from the results of that poll is that white women in the baby boomer age group are not that enthralled with athletes being paid or even with uh, nil payments. So I think there's some built-in resistance at the values level in the demographic that has the ultimate authority to decide what the future of college sports looks like. And if we see some uh, some progressive action by federal courts or federal agencies or perhaps other state legislatures other than California, I think that that may strengthen the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries' arguments to, to the senators that, look, this is going to kill us here. And they'll be receptive to those arguments. Those senators will be receptive to those arguments. So I, I think that this revenue-sharing framework as a bellwether, as as the uh, canary in the coal mine. The canary died, by the way. (laughs) The canary didn't make it back out. So I just don't think that pretends well for athletes' rights writ large. And I guess you could say, look, we're trying to do this incrementally. That's been the approach to athletes' rights, particularly in federal courts. And Claudia Wilkin, one of the most progressive judges in the country on athletes' rights, and she's heard all these big California cases. In that Austin case, in the uh, district court opinion, she was very clear to say when she was rejecting the athletes' arguments that there should just be an open and free market for the value of, of the athletes' services and that all NCAA compensation limits should be struck down as a violation of federal antitrust laws. She said, look, I'm not doing that. And this is going to be an incremental process. And she said that explicitly. And I think that's true for a lot of conservative lowercase c decision makers, whether they're federal judges, whether they are state legislators, or whether they are United States senators or representatives. They don't want the first line of their bio to read, this was the judge or legislator who killed college sports. And I think Wilkin was pretty much saying that. So we're moving it in baby steps here. And I guess you can make that argument. The problem with that argument is that by abandoning the revenue sharing provision and by not really having an employee provision in this athlete's bill of rights, we're not even having the discussion. That discussion simply gets shut down. And I think there was some sense of trying to ask for more than you would be willing to settle for in this athlete's bill of rights. And and it was a pretty aggressive countermeasure to the nil-only approach of the Republican senators that were in bed with the NCAA and the Power Five. But even if that's the case, in, in, in the political framework, just looking at it through the political viability lens, yeah, that may be a good thing to do. But the way that Booker has done this is he's really prevented any conversation from occurring. He's bidding against himself here. So if you look at this as a negotiation and he and Blumenthal decide to put this revenue sharing component to really get the Republicans' heads right on meaningful negotiation, you don't just pull that without a movement from the other side. And there's been no movement from the other side. 
there has just been a double down, a militant double down on absolute federal protections and immunities. And the NCAA and the Power Five don't want to give up a damn thing in exchange for the iron throne of college sports regulation. That arrogance is alive and well, even though Mark Emmert is on his way out. And when you start bidding against yourself, you're putting yourself in a position of weakness. And I think that has a couple of other ancillary negative consequences as well, because you have very quietly, subtly elevated the gender equity interests over the black male revenue producing athlete interests. And you've bought into this false binary, this false conflict. And you've resolved that conflict by throwing the uh, revenue-producing athletes under the bus. The other thing that I think is really a problem here, and this is this goes back to some of the early comments I heard going back to the very earliest hearings in, in 2020. And I really got concerned when I heard some of this from the athlete-friendly Democrat senators. And that is this uh, sort of irrational desire to simply get a bipartisan bill passed. Bipartisanship has been elevated to an end in itself. And Maria Cantwell is a perfect example of that. She so badly wanted to get the athletes' rights people to buy into enough of Jerry Moran's platform and that ridiculous, offensive bill, the uh, Moran bill that came out in February of 2021 that would have ended the athletes' rights movement, that she was willing to basically throw the athletes under the bus as well. So she wasn't thinking about this from an outcome standpoint. She was thinking about it in terms of just getting a, a bill that passed the blush test that could be pitched as a bipartisan bill. And I've heard some of that same rhetoric from Cory Booker. He wants to please everybody. And he's, he's a great guy. Uh, yeah, I think his his heart is in the right place with these athletes, but he is now putting on his politician hat. And you have to ask yourself, what's going to be left on the backside of that? I don't think Roger Wicker gives a damn about uh, a bipartisan solution or Jerry Moran or uh, Marco Rubio or Lindsey Graham or any of these Republicans in the Senate who've been carrying the water for the NCAA. They're coming in for the kill and they're running circles around Maria Cantwell. A little less so with Booker. I think Booker uh, has looked at these issues through a, a different lens because he's a former athlete. But again, his proposal and Blumenthal's proposal was reactive to what the NCAA had already done. And they have a, a huge head start. The momentum they brought into this discussion and the way that they framed it has become immutable. And so I, I would say that uh, Cantwell and Booker are not only bidding against themselves on the substantive provisions of the law, they're bidding against themselves in the bipartisanship negotiation because they're the ones who are coming in with the olive branch and Wicker and Moran and Graham and the boys haven't moved an inch. And then the timing of this is, is a, an issue in my judgment as well, because Booker's bidding against himself and playing the bipartisanship game while the Democrats have a, a controlling vote in the Senate. So he, he should be operating in the position of strength. And that just speaks to the power of how this debate was framed from the very beginning. And then, of course, after the midterms, imagine the Republicans winning. Cory Booker, he's not going to have any influence here. Rhetorically, he'll be able to make some speeches, but this legislation is just going to get flushed down the Republican toilet and, and they're going to laugh watching it spiral down the drain. So I think Booker is really giving up one of his best arguments, and that is the racial exploitation inherent in the business model. And when he basically turns his back on this revenue sharing provision and says it isn't worth fighting for, then I think you lose some credibility. And trying to resurrect that issue when the Republicans come in, as they're going to do if they regain control of the Senate in the midterms, and say, look, we're just going to pass a bill and we need to solve these issues, and they're just going to steamroll the athletes' rights movement and eliminate it, I think it's going to be very difficult for Cory Booker to come back and say, wait a minute, what about the interests of these black revenue producing athletes? And I think what you're going to hear from the Republicans is, wait a minute, we're not talking about money anymore. That issue's dead. In fact, you guys 
helped kill it when you pulled the revenue sharing component. You weren't even willing to fight for that. So what are you saying now? What what do you want now? What more do you want? That's the rhetoric that you're going to hear from the Republicans. And then they're going to go on about their way to pass a bill that grants the NCAA and the Power Five absolute federal protections and immunities. And that will turn the clock back to the status quo that existed before the summer of 20. 21 and the nil dump and the transfer market and the Austin decision. So you're going to have a restoration of a status quo that puts the NCAA and Power Five back where they think they rightfully belong. And there's not going to be a damn thing that Cory Booker can do about it. And I think this belief that Everybody's going to sit down at the table, negotiate in good faith, and come to a truly bipartisan decision is a fantasy. And it's admirable that Cantwell and Booker believe that that's possible, but I think it's also naive. When you're looking at the the Roger Wickers of the world and the Jerry Morans of the world, they don't give a rip about what you really think, Cory Booker, Maria Cantwell. And uh, don't forget that June 17th, 2021 hearing that Roger Wicker boycotted and the Republicans only had one member of the Commerce Committee show up to listen to black athletes and the parent of a black football player who died of heat exhaustion tell their stories. Jerry Moran showed up for a cameo and then he was out of there like crap through a goose. I talked about that in my episode on that hearing. It was disgraceful what the Republicans did. So if Cory Booker and Maria Cantwell think they're going to get some bipartisanship credits for eliminating parts of their bill that the NCAA and the Power Five find objectionable, then the athletes have a real problem. And if that's the state of the discussion in the Senate, wow, if there's a piece of legislation that comes out of the Senate at some point, there's that's not going to be good news for the athletes. And it just speaks, I think, to how difficult it is to get these issues on the table in a transparent way that's not commandeered by these powerful in-system stakeholder institutional interests. And there there are a few other values-based consequences of of what's playing out right now. And one, I I talked about this and and a couple of these other things I'm going to point out. In that episode 117, when I tried to talk about the values issues that came up with this California bill, but there are some appealing but really dangerous narratives that have been just invisibly brought into the thinking here that serve to delegitimize the interests of the revenue-producing athletes, these black men in revenue-producing sports. And one is this de minimis argument, this de minimis value, that in looking at something like revenue sharing, you only have a small number of people benefiting, and there's a hypothetical harm to a large group of people. So in balancing the interests, let's just view these few people as less important than the uh, larger group. And that's a very appealing argument on its face, but it's really a bad argument when you look at who those people are and what role they play in the ecosystem. Those small number of people, the de minimis crowd, are African-American men. And and a related theme there is that, look, these guys, these high-value athletes, they're going to make their money when they go pro, which is completely irrelevant to their value as college athletes. I don't think most Americans would be happy if their boss said, Market conditions are going to be pretty good for you next year. You're going to make a lot more money than you make this year. So we're just not going to pay you this year. You can get it next year. That's a ridiculous argument on its face, but that's essentially the logic of the argument they make when they raise that de minimis, oh, they're going to make it when they go pro, and there are only a few people who are harmed here. If you view athletes not being paid as harm, and a lot of in-system stakeholder beneficiaries don't even see it that way. But even if you see it that way, you say, no harm, no foul, they're going to make their money. But that really delegitimizes the athletes. It also fails to recognize that those laborers, although there may be a small number of laborers that provide the value in this product, they provide nearly all the value and that all these other people in the ecosystem wouldn't be able to draw down on the, the gravy train without these laborers. And then the other thing is what I have called the nil wall, the name, image, and likeness wall. And that is that 
these athletes, even though they're not employees, even though they're not getting uh, direct revenue sharing, they are still benefiting from their skill, talent, and labor through this out-of-control nil market. And you have all these numbers being thrown around. Again, we know very little about what this no market really looks like. There's zero transparency, zero transparency. So we have no reliable data. We only have the sky is falling narratives of the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries and their compliant allies in the sports media. But in that narrative, you have this perception that the athletes have gotten all that they need. And I think this is also a delegitimization tactic because I think this comes from a critical mass of decision makers who are fundamentally hostile to these athletes. And it's like, sit down and shut the hell up. You've been bitching about this. You've been fighting for this. You got it. You're getting money that you probably don't even deserve. So be happy with that and just go away. We don't want to hear from you anymore. That's the attitude. And that attitude is far more prevalent at the institutional level than I think a lot of people understand. And I just think it's really important for people like Cory Booker, who has a megaphone and he has the passion, to understand the power of those delegitimization narratives and then to stand up and fight against them. And I think that's going to be harder for him to do now, having taken this revenue sharing component and taken it off the table. And then I want to close out this eulogy to revenue sharing by pointing out that the collegiate model, the way of thinking about the, the money that moves in this system is so deeply embedded in the psyches of decision makers in all aspects of the regulation of college sports and the financial framework of college sports that it's almost impossible to fight against. What we're seeing right now through this monomaniacal focus on gender equity, on the interests of the downstream beneficiaries of revenue-producing athletes' labors is just how easy it is for the interests of the revenue-producing athletes to just disappear, literally disappear. And, and I, I haven't heard a lot about the death of the California revenue sharing bill. And maybe it's a little premature to start talking about the Booker bill because we don't have the actual legislation. But I, I think it's pretty clear from the, the material he submitted to this symposium that uh, revenue sharing is dead. And I, I think it's really disappointing that we can only talk about equity and justice when it comes to protecting the interests of stakeholders who identify most closely with the decision makers. And when you go back and you look at all of these hearings in the Senate and the House, there have been seven hearings so far since February of 2020, six in the Senate and one in the House. I have yet to see a female legislator, and I'm talking primarily about female senators, make a robust, forceful, equity and justice-based case for the laborers who underwrite the entire college sports industry. And you have heard at the same time some very passionate equity-based arguments on behalf of the interests of female athletes and Title IX and quote-unquote Olympic sport athletes. That has meaning. That tells a story. And I would note with some irony that the most forceful case against the current NCAA status quo was made by Tennessee Republican Marsha Blackburn at both the February 2020 hearing and then the June 9th, 2021 hearing where she just went after Mark Emmert. And a lot of that related to the NCAA's infractions and enforcement case against James Weissman, an African-American basketball player at Memphis, who the NCAA just screwed. And Blackburn was unhappy about that because Weissman's in her home state. And she was directing her ire at the infractions and enforcement process and at the regulatory malaise and the poor leadership of Mark Emmert. And it was interesting in that February 11th hearing, when she went after Emmert, she was speaking in terms of gender equity, really, when she was talking about some of the primary failures of the NCAA. And she's right about that. But she wasn't really speaking about the economic interests of the African-American revenue-producing athletes or their entitlement to be paid a fair share of 
the revenue that they generate. And then in that June 9th, 2021 hearing, I think she had just had it with Emmert and she just came out and said, look, it's time for you to go. Your leadership has been called into question. And I think that wasn't really a statement more on her frustration with the leadership at the NCAA than it was advocacy on behalf of African-American revenue producing athletes through a civil rights and social justice lens. I think there's overlap there with some of the infractions and enforcement concerns that she had because the NCAA's infractions and enforcement process and all of its corruption and absurdities lands disproportionately on African-American revenue producing athletes in football and men's basketball. But she wasn't really speaking the language of the athletes' rights issues that are the most important ones, in my judgment. And I think if a bill comes to the floor, and it's going to have to run through commerce and, and Blackburn's on commerce, but if, if there's a, a bill that actually is discussed and there needs to be a vote either in committee or on the floor, I think Marsha Blackburn, as a Republican from Tennessee in SEC country, is going to land very squarely with the business interests and motivations of the SEC, the Power Five, and to a lesser degree, the NCAA. Blackburn's vocal advocacy also shines a bright light on the absence of any similar advocacy by Democrat women in the Senate, particularly those on the Commerce Committee. And Maria Cantwell has made a couple of parade waves to the racial exploitation issue, but she's landing on gender equity. And she is landing on bipartisanship. And based on my observations of what she has had to say and what she's done and how she's conducted the hearings in, in 2021 when she was the chair of the Commerce Committee, it's pretty clear to me that if she buys into this false choice, this false binary between the interests of black men and downstream beneficiaries who are overwhelmingly white and non-revenue sports, she's going to land with the non-revenue sports and gender equity. And that's really unfortunate. But that's where this thing sits right now. And before before I leave the women on the Commerce Committee, I want to make another observation about Marsha Blackburn. And I talked about this a few episodes ago in connection with Mark Emmert's announcement that he was going to resign. And I talked about how Emmert had alienated Blackburn at the personal level and how damaging that was to the NCAA Power Five's campaign for protective federal legislation in the Senate. Because Marsha Blackburn is the dream senator for the Power Five and the NCAA as a Republican woman from an SEC state. And she has respect on that committee. She has earned her chops. She is somebody that the other women on that committee and throughout the Senate are going to listen to. And that's why I think it's really important to pay attention to what's going on here with Blackburn. And after Emmert resigned, Blackburn came out with a statement. And it was actually after the uh, Pac-12 Commissioner George Klyavkov and SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey went to Capitol Hill to meet with Cantwell and, and Blackburn. And Blackburn said on the backside of that, she just took another shot at Emmert and said, yeah, I think we're making some progress here because uh, Mark Emmert's gone. And that was really an important statement in my judgment. And I think Emmert's early release is probably tied to Marsha Blackburn's resistance to his leadership. And with him gone, I think Blackburn can be a very powerful ally for Power Five interests and the interests of the institutional stakeholders who want to restore the status quo that existed before the summer of 2021. And remember, Blackburn co-sponsored a bill with Cory Booker that would bring the hammer down on the NCAA infractions in an enforcement process. It's titled the NCAA Accountability Act, and it was the Senate version of a House bill that came out in uh, November of 2021. But having Booker and Blackburn team up on that bill is really an important tell, in my judgment, about what may be going on behind the scenes. And we have no idea. And that's one of the other themes that I've talked about in this whole uh, congressional campaign. And that is that when, when you enter the political system, and the NCAA did that, they went to the Senate, the Senate didn't come to them, and they were asking for a federal bailout. The law of unintended consequences and unintended alliances and all of the absurdities that, that happen in our political system behind the scenes are going to play out. And we have no idea what kind of horse trading is going on 
behind the scenes. But when you see uh, the p- kind of pivot that we see with Cory Booker on this revenue sharing component and then the addition of this gender equity provision, uh, you have to believe that there's been some conversation behind the scenes there. And I would be surprised if Marsha Blackburn isn't a prominent voice in those discussions, and she should be. But are the interests of African-American revenue-producing athletes, their economic interests, are they on the table in the context of civil rights and social justice? Or is Blackburn going to feel enormous pressure to go along with whatever Greg Sankey and the SEC movers and shakers and the leaders of this transformation committee and the Power Five more broadly want to get through congressional intervention? And what I'm seeing is that this could be heading towards a compromise, a bipartisan partisan bill that just takes off the table what I think is the most important issue, and that is the economic value of the athletes who underwrite the entire business model. And I guess the last thing I want to say before I close this thing out, because this is going to be a segue into some other things I want to talk about. I haven't fully formed my thoughts on, on some of these issues, but one of the problems with the way this debate has been framed is that we really haven't done a thorough investigation into the state of college sports and the reasons that college sports is teetering on the brink of a regulatory collapse. This is one of the most important phases in the history of college sports and the decision makers, the people who built this system, have defended this system, have run it into the ground, and instead of accepting responsibility or being held to account by our decision makers and our governments, these institutions and powerful people who can't manage their own affairs are running to the federal government to bail them out with no questions asked. And I was hopeful, honestly, that while the Democrats controlled the Senate and as the college sports business model was just crumbling around the NCAA and the Power Five in the summer of 2021, that someone in the Senate was going to stand up and say, look, we just need to press the reset button here. And we need to go back to the very beginning of this discussion and we need to change the debate. We need to change the framework and we need to start asking some really tough questions. But there doesn't seem to be much curiosity among United States senators. They're happy to let the template that was created by the NCAA and the Power Five in 2019 to be the template that's going to determine the future of college sports. No pushback. And the way this thing is moving, there is not a whole lot of hope, in in my judgment, that the revenue-producing athletes are going to come out with rights that would put them on equal footing with any other uh, American who is able in this beautiful free country to go out and make in the market with their talent and labors are worth. And we've just said to this one class of athletes for a variety of terrible reasons that they're not allowed to have those rights. And we're just not going to ask any questions. We're just going to get a bill, a bipartisan bill. We can have a ribbon cutting and we can put some Orwellian title on it and everybody can congratulate themselves and then move on. And so with that, I'm going to close this thing out. I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.